Amen. Won't you stand and join us as we continue in singing, lifting up the name of the Lord this morning. Sing with us. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the His holy name, sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship your holy name. I worship your holy name, Lord. I worship your I think we ended up with 96-ish, so we made our goal. You can be seated. That's awesome. So we don't look good, but we sound good. <laughs> if you didn't know it, um, you can be seated. If you didn't know it, this is our 90th anniversary for Baptist men, uh, men's ministry, and we thought it'd be a great idea to try to get 90 men in the choir loft this morning so we were recruiting and thank you all you guys who participate and Jonathan for putting that together uh, and Aaron for playing for us but uh, thank you for being with us in worship today we want to welcome you to our service if you're a guest of ours we're going to ask you to please take one of the care cards uh, there's a place for you to fill in your information and request information from us and then for everyone that's here on the back of the care cards a place for you to put prayer requests we do get those and we do pray for you about those things. The staff gets those. So take a moment and fill those in as you leave today. There are two giving boxes on either side of the double door, uh, just on the other side of the lobby. You can place those there uh, on your way out. But again, thank you so much uh, for being with us in worship. Missions applications for our 2024 mission trips are due today. You can still get those online or get them in the foyer, uh, a paper copy in the info desk in the lobby. Uh, just fill those in and get those turned back in. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting trips planned for this coming year and are looking forward to those. Uh, today is also the last day to sign up for our men's basketball league. If you're interested in playing that, there are sign-up sheets in both of the lobbies. It's for those that are 16 years old and up. So we're looking forward to that beginning up soon. Uh, thank you to everyone who gave to our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We collected, um, we collect that through today. We've collected 78,000 of our 85,000 church goal, and all of those funds that we collect go totally to our international missionaries 
in their support on the field. So if you haven't had a chance to give to that yet, uh, you can make up some of that deficit even today. Uh, but thank you to all that gave to that. Uh, we've already said today is the 90th anniversary of Baptist Men. Our Baptist Men's Director, Scott Dry, uh, is coming to tell us what's happening, what's going on in men's ministry. Scott, you come. I'd like to take this time to share with you about some of the upcoming Pitts Baptist Men's event for this coming year. Uh, this year, we have planned four days of hope for local missions. Uh, this events they will be they will begin in the core at 8 a.m. with a breakfast and a devotion. And the dates for these are April the 6th, June the 1st, August 3rd, and December the 7th. On March 8th to 10th, there will be a construction trip to Snowbird. Some construction experience is requested. Uh, for more information, please see uh, Robbie Jones, and you can sign up to start today at the information desk. The North Carolina Baptist Men Regional Mission Rally will be Tuesday, February the 20th, 5.50 p.m. at Hickory Grove Baptist Church, their Mallard Creek campus. This will include a dinner, a time of worship, testimonies, and information. Please register online at baptistownmissions.org, and this is a no-cost event. At this time, will you direct your attention to the screens? There is a massive problem in our culture today, and it's that uh, men are being shamed for being men. Um, men are being discouraged for living out what God has called men to be. And um, if we're gonna take back our, our culture, and if we're gonna see great things happen in our world, men have to live up to, to their full calling. That's the struggle that men have a, a lot of times as we push through life, we wear ourselves out, and what we don't realize is God's not in that. One thing about our culture is I think we're so um, sensitive to our feelings now. We're in a feeling world, and I really believe that men want to be men. They, when they're wrong, they want to be told that they're wrong, and that's a blessing. I mean, God says that He wants men sharpening other men. I think that's one of the blessings of Red Truck Men. I'm accountable, all men are, for the men I have relationships with, okay? Now, for years, I struggled with telling people about God, okay? I'm just not good at that. I'm not good at bumping into somebody in the grocery store and saying, hey, let me tell you about God. The great thing about Red Truck Men is it's, it's a, it allows every man to accomplish his calling to disciple other men, and the way we do it is we have men just invite other men to breakfast. It's simple. We're getting to know me, uh, men where they're at, but more importantly, we're understanding and beginning to understand how God has got a call in our life. It has to do about a relationship, and that's with Him.
Red Truck Men meet the second Wednesday of each month at Harrisburg Park. It starts out with a farm fresh breakfast, a time of devotion, and fellowship. And guys, this is an awesome men's ministry. It's this, it's this, I look forward to it every month. Uh, you go online, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you go online at redtruckmen.org and sign up. And on the way out today, if you would please, go by the information desk and grab one of these flyers and it talks about, has information about everything I spoke of today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Like you said, go by all that information you gave is on a, on a half sheet at the information desk. Go by and get that. I've been to the Red Truck Men event. It is a great time to get together. You know, it's interesting. We've been uh, studying this week in week eight of our Master Life Together series dealing with relationships. We need each other. It's important. You know, we went through COVID and we weren't meeting here together to come together. It was tough. It was rough to not be together. God wants us and has created us to come together with relationships, and that's important. Back in week one, we memorized Mark 12, 30 that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that was Jesus telling them what the greatest commandment was. The vertical relationship with God is obviously important, but the horizontal relationship with our fellow man is also important, which leads to our verse this week. In week eight, can we get that up on the screens and we'll say that together? You say it with me. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Mark 12, 31. That is our uh, verse for this week. Hopefully you've been keeping up with your master life together. I know Scott's prepared a message uh, concerning that topic this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Remember our youth. They're on their way back from Team Valley Ranch. They were snow slushing, skiing um, this weekend. And so you remember them as they travel back that they'll have safety. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. God, I thank you for the men of our church. God, the examples that they are to each one of us, to our families. And God, I pray you would call them to the leadership positions that you have called them, God, and they would stand, take a stand for what is right. They would take a godly stand for, for what you teach in your word. That we would tell our friends and our neighbors and our families about who Jesus is. That we would take a bold stand to be the man of God that you've called us to be. God, we pray for Pastor Scott as he brings this message today that you've given him. Challenge our hearts with it. God, we do pray for our teenagers and leaders that are at Teen Valley and will be heading back very soon. God, give them safety as they travel. God, we again, thank you for all you do for us, like this worship service, this time together with your church, be a time that is pleasing to you, God. Help us to worship you in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship together? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We build our lives on the foundation of Jesus. Amen? Would you sing about that with me this morning? Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. 
Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing this morning. The men included. Uh, take your Bibles and find Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Relationships matter. Relationships matter. And I trust that uh, you're still diligently going through your book each week. And uh, of course this week uh, closes out. We've been in week number 8 talking about relationships. And so we're going to look at a passage this morning. I'm going to apply some things to men, but uh, also just some things uh, that apply to a church body and the relationships that we need to be thinking of and how we govern those relationships. It's not a passage unfamiliar with us. In fact, this passage that showed up in our lessons this week, uh, we've looked at it a time or two in recent years. You'll recognize uh, the words of this passage. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we will read down through verse 11. Uh, relationships matter. Uh, Paul says to the church at Philippi, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we thank you for these powerful words. And God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today what your Spirit is saying to the church. We know even as this passage points out so eloquently that relationships matter. Relationships are fundamental to what we do day in and day out. Relationships are where we live out the gospel before a watching world. Where we relate to friends and co-workers and family members and people at school and, and neighbors. And so Lord help us to be the type of people that will glorify you in our relationships. That will be an aroma of life in Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. 
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you are well aware of, in fact, I don't have to tell anybody the following statement today. You, you know it already in your heart. You see it every day. We have become a society of self. We are all about self. Me, myself, and I. Do you realize every single day, not just in the country alone, but in the world, including other nations with us, every single day, 93 million selfies are taken. Think about that. 93 million. You know what a selfie is, right? Somebody takes their phone and holds it out and sort of poses. And, you know, if it's a guy, he might be flexing his muscles. If it's a young woman, she's giving you those duck lips. Can somebody please tell me what those duck lips are all about? Why is everybody pooching out their lips? More people die every year from accidents related to selfies than than shark attacks. Seriously. No kidding. I like what one pastor said, one popular pastor. I I cracked up when I heard him say this. Or, you know, the reality uh, TV show, Shark Week, are they going to come out with Selfie Week? It seems that everybody wants to communicate that perfect pose, that perfect selfie on Instagram or Facebook. It's not unusual to hear somebody getting over by the edge of a cliff or something to to capture the perfect selfie. The ground gives out below their feet and they go tumbling down to to their death. All in attempt to portray yourself in a certain way. And on the internet, what, what is, what's everybody doing on the internet, on their, on their own page, on their account? They're, they're trying to portray to the world that they've got this perfect life. And of course, that's been shown. That's not the case at all. They're going through the same struggles in life you're going through. But everybody's portraying the best in, in their life about everything. Selfishness. Selfishness, we know, has also invaded the church. But as Paul writes to the Philippians, he's showing here in this passage that we are to be about the very opposite. We're to be about others. We're to be about one another. In fact, he says we're to put one another's needs even ahead of ourselves. Jesus said we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. As Kevin pointed out a moment ago, uh, that was part of the Two great commandments that Jesus gave. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and spirit, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus even told a parable about a good Samaritan who selflessly looked after his neighbor even at great personal cost to himself. And that's how you and I are to be as followers of Christ. And that's what Paul is addressing here in this passage. 
What a great example it is for, for Baptist Men's Day. Be, men being servants in the church, putting other people first. But how is this going to happen? How can it happen? Well, first of all, I want you to notice with me this morning, believers are to unify around the biblical revelation. And we'll spend most of our time on this first point this morning. Read again with me verses 1 and 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You may not immediately see how this first part here relates to relationships, but it does. Here in these verses, for instance, we have Christ mentioned, we have the Spirit mentioned. We see from the very beginning of the Bible that God is a triune God. We speak of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke to the Corinthian congregation about how he submitted to his Father even though he was equal with the Father. And in the Gospel of John it speaks about how the Spirit glorifies Christ. The members of the Godhead, the members of the Trinity are in relationship with one another. A perfect example of relationship. And in Genesis 1.26, the Bible says, God is speaking and God says, Let us make man in our image. And then we see God saying in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so what did God do? He created Eve. He created the woman. Man is created for relationships. First of all, there's the vertical, our relationship with God, and then the horizontal, our relationship with others. In 1 John, the question is asked, how can you say, how can you even say that you love God whom you've not seen if you don't love your fellow man who you do see? Folks, relationships matter. The Bible says we're to love one another, we're to encourage one another, we're to pray for one another, we're to weep with one another when others are weeping, we're to rejoice with others when they're rejoicing. We were made for relationships. One of the growing concerns of, of the day, I don't know if you're paying much attention to what's going on in society, and particularly among men. One of the big concerns about society today is the downfall of relationships, the dearth of friendships. Since 1990, people saying they do not have friends, they don't have anybody they can go to in their lives, since 1990, those statistics have gone up five times, especially among men. There's a number of sociologists and psychologists who are today sounding the alarm on manhood. It, again, if you're not paying attention, you need to be if you have sons and grandsons. 
Boys are being left behind in school. They're waning far behind girls. College degree earners are now in the majority women. Boys are lagging on test scores, admissions, and on and on I could go. And a piece I was listening to just this week said that all of this started as a good thing. In the 1950s, there was a concerted effort to give attention to girls because back then the statistics were flip-flopped what they are today. Girls were being left behind. They were being left behind in the entire educational system, in college, in the workplace. And, And so it was a good thing that the emphasis was being placed on girls and what can we do better as a society to engage girls and those steps were taken but now it's flip-flopped in the other direction and not only has it flip-flopped in the other direction but it has flip-flopped in an exaggerated way it's even worse now for, for, for males And on top of that, a lot of the manufacturing jobs that men used to go into, they've gone overseas. The trades are being ignored by many. And who is it mainly suffering from that? Men, and of course the domino effect, their families and their future families are suffering because of this. And in some academic areas, one psychologist was talking about how by 2030, the entire counseling and psychiatry field for the most part will be made up exclusively of women can you imagine in 2030 a man wanting to go to a counselor to talk about some kind of man issue and there's there's no there's only a woman to go could you imagine the outcry if it were the other way around a woman wanting to go to a counselor to talk about women's issues and there was no woman counselor to go to that's where we're going with this STEM jobs, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, those type-oriented jobs are lagging for men. Women have grown exponentially in, in those fields. Again, that's a good thing, but men have not. In fact, they're seeing a decline in STEM-oriented jobs. Heel jobs are growing exponentially for women as well health education administration literacy those type jobs men are absent in those areas there there's an inc- a little bit of an increase they're seeing in nursing among men but that is nowhere near making up for the other lagging that's going on there, there's a crisis developing in education and in the workforce Among younger grade school kids, there's only one male teacher in 10 teachers. A a, a male teacher in, in 10 in the younger ages. And in some of these schools... There, when there's no man in the classroom, the, some of these schools serve communities that are without fathers. And so there is no male presence that the boys are getting. A crisis going on. You ought to, you ought to read some of the stuff and watch some of the uh, videos and all by, by Richard Reeves with Brookings Institute. Hardly a conservative, and Brookings Institute, har- hardly a conservative institution, if anything. 
probably center left a little bit and they're talking about this crisis going on right now and Richard Reeves says he's talked to some of his uh, more radical left-wing feminist friends the ladies and and they see it they're sounding the alarm but they're saying Richard but we can't talk about it because if we talked about this with our colleagues we would be accused that we were no longer fighting for females and he's saying why can't we fight for both males and females we we've got to address this crisis with with men and young men in particular now again why am I addressing all of this in a sermon on relationships it's because we're seeing men pull back from relationships more and more men are living in isolation even young men are pulling back from society pulling back from relationships Seven to nine million working age men, 18 to 54, are absent from the workforce now. What's going on? Men pulling back from relationships, isolating themselves. And folks, that's not how we were created to be. That's not how we were created to be. You add to this how most young people now are not going to church. Uh, Dating has become more of just swiping a screen. So all the personal aspects being taken out. Society is in trouble on this issue of relationships. And, And what if somebody comes to church and they're not encouraged by what they find at church when it comes to healthy relationships. What if they don't see healthy relationships at church? What if they see just the opposite? A couple of years ago, I told you a, a, an illustration about a church in Dallas, Texas that became so divided, each side in the church was suing the other. Despite all the commands in, in the Bible, we shouldn't do that among the fellowship. This was a story that hit the Dallas press. And the judge in the case, you got to love what he said. He judged very wisely that it wasn't going to be in the province of the secular courts until they had first of all taken it to their denomination and let a denominational court settle the issue. The losers withdrew and they formed another church nearby. Now it was reported in the press that the denominational court had conducted a very uh, intensive investigation into the origin of the dispute and what led to the split. And you know what they found? Folks, you can't make this up. What they found was at a church fellowship dinner, a church a church potluck type dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than the child who was seated next to him. So situations like that in churches certainly don't help. Or when somebody, when when the world hears about sex abuse cases in the church that have been covered up. Churches across the nation. Things like that never helped uh, church bodies. 
and things like that should never happen in church bodies. You know, we look at the Bible, on the other hand, we look at the early church and we can't help but see their love for one another. You look at those early chapters in the book of Acts and you're, you're struck by how devoted they were to one another and how they truly prayed for one another, encouraged one another, helped one another. You know, Jesus had told them in John chapter 13, the world will know you're my, my disciples by this. If you love one another, and the early church certainly took that to heart. But how do we do that? How do we relate to one another? How do we fellowship with one another? How do we have healthy relationships where people aren't just looking out for themselves? Well, what we have to do is get back to point one here. The biblical revelation what does the biblical record tell us about relationships? That's what Paul is addressing here. And notice what he points out. First of all, he's telling them that we are to be of the same mind. We're to have common convictions. That ought to be the first hallmark of a biblical fellowship. We're united around the same basic beliefs. We have common convictions about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what is it that supplies those common convictions? It's the scripture. We'll never be alike on opinions or preferences. If you think everybody's going to be alike in, in the church on preferences and opinions, then, then I'm sorry you're naive. It's not going to happen. Some will like one type of church building. Some will like another type church building. Some will like one type of, uh, of church music. Some another all kinds of things when it comes to preferences. But folks, it's got to be the scripture that is our rallying point as to what our convictions are. Things like the sovereignty of God. The inspiration and authority of Holy Scripture. The eternal lostness of man apart from Christ. Salvation through Christ alone. The necessity of repentance and faith for the new birth. The virgin birth of Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. The resurrection, bodily resurrection of Christ. The second coming of Christ. The, the essentiality of, of missions. We've got to rally around these things in the church. On secondary issues, we'll, we'll differ. De according to maybe denominations, different views of baptism or the Lord's Supper or list of spiritual gifts or how we're going to interpret end time events. But on those basic convictions, we're to rally around each other and be in agreement. And again, where do these convictions come from? From the Bible. From the Bible. <clears throat> Those are basic things that we're to hold one another to in the church and encourage one another toward. 
When disagreements do take place, as will in any setting involving human beings, we need to handle those appropriately and biblically. And, and again, I commend you, because in 25, almost 26 years of being here now, as your pastor, the staff, I can honestly say, we don't hear of a lot of these disagreements going on. I, I mean, maybe, maybe they're happening and we just don't hear about them, but from what I hear from you, you're, you're saying too that it's such a marvelous church family. You don't hear of all this bickering and fighting and all. So again, I commend you for that. That's a great example. But when things do happen, what did Jesus say in Matthew 18 that we're to do? We're to go to somebody privately. And if that doesn't work, you take somebody else with you. You try to settle the, the matter just between those two parties if possible. Paul says in the book of Romans that as far as possible, as, it, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that we're to forgive. And he gave the illustration to Peter about a king forgiving a servant of a, of a massive amount of debt that the servant could have never repaid. But the king forgave him of that debt. But then the servant went out and met up with a fellow servant who owed him a very minor debt. And yet the servant wouldn't forgive his fellow servant. And so in the end, the unforgiving servant was cast into prison. And of course, Jesus was making an illustration. God is the great king who has forgiven us of a debt that we could never repay. He's given us salvation and forgiveness even though none of us, not even one, could have ever earned it or deserved it. Now we need to start seeing that whatever wrong somebody has done to us, it's minor compared to our sin against God. And Jesus goes on to make the point there, if we can't forgive one another, we demonstrate that we don't belong to the king. We don't have his nature. There's no family likeness. Scripture also points out we're to minister to others, even at personal cost. I mentioned a moment ago the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan who ministered to us at great cost to himself. All of these examples that I'm mentioning, I, I'm, I'm doing so because they're examples that you went over this week in your homework. And any of these passages that you went over in your homework would have been great fodder for the sermon this morning. Folks, we need to be like-minded when it comes to these matters. Uh, these, these matters that have to do with relationships. We need to be like-minded in allowing the Bible to dictate us, to dictate to us, how things are going to be handled in relationships. And this is what Paul was wanting the Philippian church to understand. He wanted their minds being like two clocks that would strike at the same time. They would be in unity over these things. 
He says also there to be of the same love. Here's another rallying point for Christians. We have a common love. What is it? Our love for Christ. In Christianity, we don't just embrace a religious system. We embrace a person, Jesus Christ. We love Him. And because we love Him, we love His children. We love those born of Christ. We love the brethren. And we love the things of God. We love what God loves and we hate what God hates. Does that describe you? Do you love Christ? Do you love the brethren? Do you love what God loves? He says we're to be of the same mind and purpose. Again, talking about relationships in the Philippian church and likewise in all churches down through the ages. We're to be of the same spirit and purpose. Uh, We should literally be spirit with spirit, Paul says here, rallying around one purpose, glorifying and exalting God, being about the Great Commission, being about discipling people, uh, taking part in missions, getting the name of Christ out around the world. These are the things that Paul says are to dictate our relationships in the church, what we're about as a collective people, and what we're to be like-minded in. And he, and he gives some motivations about why we would do all of this. He says, beginning there in verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and in the Greek text, the word if takes on the meaning of since. He's not saying if these things have happened to you, but rather he's saying since they have. The first one is encouragement in Christ. And the word he uses here for encouragement is the same word that describes how the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to help us. Has the Lord ever done that for you? Have you ever sensed that he stood with you and strengthened you and encouraged you? Sure he has. He's done that. He's done that maybe at a time in your life when you needed it the most. Maybe you were going through a a dark trial in your life. Maybe the Lord laid it on somebody's heart to come around and see you and you were helped by that. And so Paul is saying as those who have been encouraged, we need to be encouragers. As those who have received help, we need to be helpers. As those who have been served, we need to serve. We need to pass along blessings that God's given us. The next motivation Paul gives, any comfort from love. Has has it ever done you any good in the midst of, of the valley to understand that God loves you? You may not like what God has you going through at a particular time, period in your life. But you know as his child, whatever you face has first of all been sifted through his loving fingers. And have you been comforted by that fact that God loves you and has a plan for your life, even when you don't understand that plan? Paul mentions, is there any participation in the Spirit? You and I enjoy the participation in the Holy Spirit. He's with us. He's promised He never leaves us, never forsakes us. That's the kind of endurance we need to have with one another in our relationships on a horizontal level. Instead of a bookkeeper's mentality that says, if you ever do that again, I'll never speak to you. We need to remember we have fellowship with the Spirit. What if the Spirit said something like that to us? If you ever do that again, I'll leave you forever. Aren't you glad he doesn't do that? 
finally, by way of motivation for carrying all this out, Paul says, is there any affection and sympathy? That's an expression that goes well with love. Not only does God love us, but he's got an affection and a sympathy for us. In other words, his love is not disconnected. It's not remote. It's not cold. It's up close and personal. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. And so in our relationships with the brethren, those relationships are to be up close and personal not disconnected and distant. All of these things are written about where? Where would you learn this about biblical relationships? You learn it in the Bible. We need to unify around these things that are taught in plain black and white in God's inspired word. Second thing I want you to see today. Believers are to yield to other believers in non-essentials. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Folks, this is a huge one here for relationships. He admonished them to lay down any spirit of rivalry or conceit, lay that down. Don't let that be a part of your life. Don't let it be a part of life in the church. The word for conceit here is vainglory. Somebody having too high of an opinion of themselves. Far too many people in the world have too high of an opinion of themselves. Paul saw how that could destroy a church fellowship. They were to look after one another even to the point of putting others ahead of them and others' interest ahead of theirs. One tragic thing in the world that we're seeing today is everybody is demanding for their needs to be met. We see it in marriages. Everybody thinks that the other person is supposed to just look after the, everybody in the family supposed to meet their needs and you know the revolutionary thing about Christian faith and Christian marriage the Bible tells us we're to meet the needs of our spouse we're to meet the needs of others the husband for example is to take care of the needs of the wife she is to be on his heart and mind he's to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that's how a husband is to be, looking after the needs of his wife. The wife looking after the needs of the husband. Guess what? Guess what happens? Well, a couple of things. Everybody's needs are met. But you know, they're met in the best possible way because it's your mate meeting your needs. And you see them, what they're doing for, and it, it makes you feel all the closer to them because you see what they're doing for you. And they see what you're doing for them. But on the other hand, if you're just thinking about yourself and maybe the other spouse isn't doing what you think they ought to be doing, you're focused on you instead of focused on what am I doing for her or what am I doing for him. If you're focused on yourself, you don't feel like you're getting what you need, then there's bitterness that takes place in the marriage. And then resentment happens. 
I read an article just this week. Maybe you saw the same article in the news this week about that lady on TV affectionately known as Judge Judy. Did your, anybody in here read the article about her and her marriage? Okay. It was talking about her marriage to her second husband. And, and the article was meant to outline what has <clears throat> kept them together. But as I read that article, I thought, this is appalling on so many levels. It was basically the world's wisdom rolled up into a short article. It was a second marriage for, for both of them. And it talked about how they actually divorced for a year. And then they got remarried to each other. And the whole article was sort of, what have you done for me lately? That appeared to be the problem in their mirror. What have you done for me lately? And again, the article was meant to, to build, build them up, I suppose. But as I read that, I thought, that's the problem with relationships. What have you done for me? It, it certainly didn't put them in a good light, in my opinion. In fact, it was a sermon. To me, the article was a sermon in how not to live out Philippians chapter 2. We're to meet one another's needs, focus on others. And their needs are met because we're the ones meeting their needs and we're creating an atmosphere of love. Things like that just don't happen in marriages and in homes. happens in churches as well. But if it's going to happen in churches, you know what it takes? It takes Christian maturity. Christian maturity. Because think with me a minute about little kids out on a playground. What are little kids on a playground? What are they after? Mine, mine, mine. You try to take a toy away from a child and boy, you can be in for a temper tantrum. That's a sign of immaturity. We teach children though as they get older, what are they supposed to learn to do? Look after others and share. That's a sign of maturity. Try taking somebody's normal seat at church and see how they react. <laughs> you know what? That'll tell you everything you need to know about where they are in their relationship with Christ. I'm serious. In a church body, when we see brothers and sisters in need, what are we to do? We're to busy ourselves with meeting those needs. If the youth are working on a mission project and they need their church family to help them gather resources or, or whatever, you know what we ought to be doing? We ought to be helping. If we learn of things going on in the children's ministry and, and how we as a church body can help, we need to be helping. If the seniors have needs on a mission trip, we need to be helping. That's the sign of a healthy church family. Not only a healthy church family, a holy church family family when people are looking after one another folks this consumer mentality that's so common in society today has crept into the church and it is hurting so many church ministries today because everybody is about what are they going to do for me this week what are they going to do for me today 
And we ought to be thinking about when we come to church, how am I going to keep my focus on others? And together, we can glorify the name of Christ. Third thing I want you to see. Believers are to imitate Jesus. Believers are to imitate Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Some of the greatest teaching on Jesus Christ coming in the flesh occurs in these verses right here. But do you know how, do you see how Paul is using these verses? Paul is using these verses as an illustration, the perfect illustration of what he's just admonished the church at Philippi to do in the first four verses. As a Sunday school teacher, you're probably always looking for a perfect illustration that you can, a, a text you're teaching on, what's a perfect illustration for a point you're making, right? Pastors look for the same. The great preacher, Dr. Stephen Olford, he's gone home to be with the Lord now. He even became a teacher of preachers. Somebody asked Dr. Stephen Olford on one occasion, said, uh, Professor, which point should I illustrate in my sermon? You know what he said? He said, only the points that you want your congregation to understand. That's what illustrations are meant to do. Shed light on what you've just taught. And that's what Paul is doing here. And look at the illustration that he's using. He's using the best illustration of all. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about what Jesus did for us. Folks, there's no greater contrast in all the world than that between Jesus and Satan or Jesus and lost man. But here we see Jesus who is very God of very God emptying himself, humbling himself and giving up what was already his. He was above all creatures, human and angelic. And what did he do in the incarnation? He laid aside his robes. He laid aside the, the heavenly glory that was his uh, from eternity. And laying aside his heavenly glory, he did not lay aside his divine attributes because that's who he was and is. He's God and nothing can change that. But in the incarnation, what did he do? He laid aside that heavenly glory. He made himself of no reputation and he became a servant. He stooped to our level. He became one of us without sin. He loved us enough that he gave up his rights. He gave up what he deserved and he took our sin and he died on a cross. Not only did he die, but he died a criminal's death. He deserved worship and praise, but he received hatred and mockery and death. Why did he do this? Because of us. He did it for us. The just dying for the unjust. That's why Paul says, 
in verse 5. Have this mind in you. I like those translations that say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He looked after our needs, put his own needs aside. Paul's saying, you think unity is hard? You think relationships are hard? You think they're difficult? Let me show you somebody who did it far better than you and has modeled all of this perfectly. His name is Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is Jesus humbled himself. He points out in verse 9 that God turned right around and exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Next time you go thinking... I, I deserve to be treated this way in the church. I deserve to be treated this way in, in my marriage, in my home, at work, at school. I, I, de- I deserve this. I deserve. And you start thinking about how, in your opinion, everybody's not taking good enough care. Paul is saying, you need to think about Jesus. Who deserved everything. Because he's God the Son. And yet he willingly laid it all aside for you and for me. If he did that, don't you think you can do that? Humble yourself. Serve others. Put others ahead of yourself. And just watch what God does. One seminary evangelism professor who's written a book, he was actually a seminary professor at Southwestern, he talked about what happened in the life of one of his students. One of his students who rode motorcycles came in one day and uh, parked near another motorcycle that was a lot like his. Uh, But this other motorcycle didn't have mirrors. Later on, Uh, when that student left, he noticed that the mirrors on his bike were gone and there they were on the other bike. And he knew they were his mirrors because of certain marks that were on them. And he was enraged. He took the mirrors off of that other bike. I can't believe that guy stole my mirror. He took them off that bike, put them back on his, flooded the guy's bike and took off. And he asked his professor, I've just really been convicted about this. What should I do? And the professor said, you know what you need to do. Well, he went and bought new mirrors, even better mirrors, and installed them on that other guy's bike. And he left a note. He said, you made me so angry, you stole my mirrors. And I knew they were mine that you took them because certain marks on them. But you know what? I went home and I was so convicted because of my relationship with Christ. God wouldn't even let me sleep. So I bought you mirrors, even better mirrors, and put on your bike. I'm sorry for what I did. Well, the guy who was the thief contacted this guy. 
and 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 he said you know what I've stolen many things by the way they were at work not seminary I hope seminary students weren't stealing from one another but they were their bikes were parked at work where this happened and this guy said I've stolen many things from people but I've never had anybody do something so kind for me can we meet and talk they met and talked and that guy went back into his seminary class and said professor I've just got a report to everybody what happened a relationship started between me and this other guy and I have had the opportunity now of leading him to faith in Christ that's the sort of thing God can do when we imitate Christ and humble ourselves and look after somebody in our books this week, we also saw a passage out of Matthew 5. Jesus gave the example of somebody asking you to carry their stuff for a mile, and he said, carry it a second mile. You've got to understand the context there. The Jews were under Roman occupation. Legally, a Roman soldier could command you as a Jewish citizen to carry their pack or their stuff for a mile. A Roman soldier could command you legally to do that. And legally, you had to carry his stuff for a mile. <clears throat> of course, the Jews hated this. What did Jesus say? You get done carrying the person's stuff for a mile, and you say, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll carry it another mile for you. Folks, what effect do you think something like that would have on a Roman soldier? A Roman soldier said, you're willing to do what? Why would you do something like that? Because that's what God tells me to do. <clears throat> what effect do you think something like that would have on, on, on the soldier? That's exactly what Paul is telling the Philippians as to how they are to act. Serve people, humble yourselves before people, look after their needs to such a point that they would see Jesus in you as you do that. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer. This morning I want to ask you, are you a servant or do you like to be served? Are you selfish? Do you demand your own way? If so, it will destroy most, if not all, of your relationships before it's said and done. In fact, I bet that you already have a graveyard full of bad relationships. And could it be that that selfishness indicates a deeper problem? Could it actually be indicating that you are yet to have the life of Christ in you? When Christ moves into your life, things change. If nothing has changed then where is the life of Christ in you? This morning, do you need a relationship with Christ? I'm going to invite you to come forward in, in just a moment. Me or the other pastors, we want to pray with you. Maybe you know you're saved, but you reverted back to living in the flesh far too often. You know what you need to do. I have a feeling the Holy Spirit's been convicting you of what you need to be doing to serve others. 
Maybe selfish demands have just about destroyed your marriage or your home life. Why not ask Jesus today to live his servant heart through your life? Serve your spouse like he or she may not even deserve. And then see what God is able to do. What could God do through your life if you started treating others around you at school, at work, at church the way God in Christ has treated you? Lord, we know that relationships do indeed matter. They matter to you and because they matter to you, they should matter to us. We're not to just be concerned about the vertical relationship with you. If that vertical relationship is what it's supposed to be, then the horizontal relationships with others should be transformed as well. Father, I pray that each of us in our hearts would examine our lives and that we would determine to be the type of people that follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That we would impact this church family that way. We would impact our own family. We would impact the world around us. Because people would see Jesus in us. Lord, have your way and your will during this time of invitation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.